Uh, my name is Freddie. I am uh, the pastor of Young Adult Ministry here at Northview, and it is my joy to be here with you this evening. We're going to be in Gospel of John, chapter 18, so if you have a Bible or a phone, you're welcome to turn there. My first mission trip experience was with MB Mission, which now is called Multiply, and I went and served for 10 days in Salt Lake City. And one of the things that we did was I had my first experience doing street kind of like evangelism, uh, where you would just walk up to people and ask them if, if they had heard about Jesus. And I remember walking around through Salt Lake City and asking all manner of people, do you know who Jesus is? Uh, have you heard of Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And basically everyone said yes. And I remember going back to the missionary when they gathered us all together again after a couple hours. We sat down for lunch and myself and a few other of the more bold folks were like, hey, like everyone here believes in Jesus. Like, uh, why are we here? Why are we evangelizing? And the missionary challenged us. Well, it's everyone believes in Jesus and like they know he existed. Ask them what they believe about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus accomplish? So we did. We went back out. And the experience was very different the second time. Everyone can believe in Jesus in the sense that, yeah, he was a man and he lived. And, uh, you know, there's a book about him, I guess, and a show now. But what do you believe about Jesus? Well, that's what makes a Christian or not. If you know anything about Utah, right, it's, it's Mormon country, right? LDS, Church of Latter-day Saints. And there was a lot of differences between what I think about Jesus and what some of our LDS neighbors thought. That experience, I was reflecting on this week, because when you look through John 18, 1 to 14, we're asking a very similar question. Who is Jesus and what did he accomplish? What is the identity of Jesus and what was his mission? And if you look through John 18, I think the answer is very simple. Jesus is God. So that's the big idea for tonight. Jesus is God. I have two points, blind seekers and ignorant actors. So our first point, blind seekers, John 18, starting in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus, or Judas, pardon me, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those who you gave me, I have not lost one. John 18 is picking up right after the upper room discourse, right? John 13 to 17. And it opens with the phrase, these words, after Jesus had said these words. At the very least, we're talking about John 17, which is Jesus praying for his disciples, praying for us, future disciples. 
But probably the whole conversation, the whole evening, Jesus had the last supper with his closest followers. And after supper was over, they crossed the brook and they're going to the garden. Jesus had just finished speaking to them about the, the, a crash course, the basics of the Christian life. Christian life is a life of service, which Jesus modeled through washing their feet. Christian life is a life of following Jesus, which Jesus reminded them in telling them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A Christian life is a life filled with the Spirit. Jesus promised them, when I depart, I will send you the helper or the paraclete, and he will help you. He will show you all truth. Jesus told them about Christian life, prayed for them, and now the scene has changed. If we were watching this as a movie, right, the music would be changing, right, a lot, a lot of cello, right, to bring your emotions down a little bit. It would be darker lighting, right? If you play video games, this is boss music turning on, right, as you're crossing the brook and you're like, wait a minute, something big is going to happen, the confrontation that's been foreshadowed several places as John's been leaving breadcrumbs to get to this moment, it's about to take place. And of course, they're in the garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't tell us this. He just tells us they went into a garden, an enclosed space. But if we look at other gospels, for example, Mark 14, you would know that it's the garden of Gethsemane, a place that Jesus frequently went with his disciples. And this will be the scene of the showdown, of the moment where the religious leaders who hate Jesus will finally confront him. They're this group of bad guys, I'm going to refer to as the crowd, and there's three distinct subgroups within this crowd. There's Judas, there's Roman soldiers, and there's Jewish soldiers. So we'll go through each group. Judas is the first one. He is the guide. He is one of the 12, and he is there to betray Jesus. John has given us several clues along the way that Judas was always going to be a bad guy. Judas Iscariot was a traitor. At the beginning of chapter 13, he told us Judas was looking to betray Jesus. And then earlier in chapter 12, John had made a comment about Judas kept the money purse because he would steal from it. So we already knew Judas is kind of not a trustworthy guy. And as we jump into the scene in chapter 18, we're told, well, he's actually not just a non-trustworthy guy. He's actually a traitor. He is going to hand over Jesus to this group of soldiers. So his duty or his job, if you will, is that he's going to lead them to a place he knows Jesus likes to go. He's just the guide. Luke 22 gives us a helpful picture here. Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12, so one of the 12 disciples, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. The garden is the ideal location. They've had a long day together. They had a big meal. Jesus lectured for hours and now they're crossing the brook and they're going somewhere very quiet, away from the city. This is Judas's moment. He's been plotting for this. And to gather the forces he needs, he went and procured, we're told, a band of soldiers. If you're reading fast, you might just assume it's all the same group of people, but there are two groups of soldiers. The first is a band of soldiers or a cohort of soldiers, depending on your translation. And these are Roman soldiers. That phrase, the cohort, was a unit in the Roman army that was made up of 760 infantry and 240 cavalry, so 1,000 soldiers. That's what a cohort was. Sometimes that word will get used 
of what's called the maniple, which if you like Roman Empire stuff, that's a fun fact for you. A maniple is smaller than a cohort, but they'll use the same word, another cohort. But that would be 200 ground infantry. So Judas has gathered a band of soldiers of at least 200, if not a full thousand. And these guys have brought all their gear. They have torches, they have weapons, they have lanterns. They are ready for a throwdown. We have to ask the question, like, why so many soldiers? It's Jesus and 12 disciples. They're purposely gonna go find him when he's by himself, right, away from the crowds who might defend him. Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher, he wasn't a soldier. And his guys that followed him were a tax collector and some fishermen, like they were nobodies. So why such a big force? Well, if you really wanna make an example of someone, you show up big when you take them down. So this reminded me of a story I read in the news last year. There's a man named Mark Huck who is a pro-life activist in the U.S. and in Philadelphia. And in September 2022, this man was arrested in his home, 6.45 a.m. on a Saturday morning. He's just at home and he hears, open up. And he goes to the door. He's got six kids, a wife, everyone's sleeping. And he looks through the peephole and sees 25 FBI agents and state troopers in tactical gear here to serve a warrant. Uh, this warrant was the conclusion of a year of back and forth and legal things uh, where Mark had been praying outside of an abortion clinic, uh, but there's a law in the US, you can't be within 250 feet. And he was pretty close to that. Someone confronted him and his son and they were making threatening motions towards his kid, he pushed the guy away. So now there's a warrant for pushing a guy away of 25 soldiers in tactical gear. If you wanna make an example of someone, we have no tolerance for this kind of behavior. That's how you do it. If you wanna make an example of the lack of tolerance for Jewish leaders that would kind of break the mold, that would try to make their own following, people like Jesus, this is how you do it. You gather 200 Roman soldiers. And we have to understand the, the cultural moment. It is Passover weekend. Jerusalem was a city of around 200,000 that swolled up to almost a million people that week. So there were Roman soldiers deployed to that city to make sure that everyone behaved. And you have 200 of those soldiers leaving the city, crossing the Brook, Brook Kidron to go get this guy. They really want to make a show of him. They really want to make an example of him. So they go, and it's not just them. We're also told there are officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So there's also Jewish soldiers. These would be the guys that just served in the temple as they were basically policemen. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find these guys show up again in, in Acts chapter four, and they arrest uh, Peter and John after they've been preaching. So you have Jewish soldiers, you have 200 or more Roman soldiers and Judas. This is a massive crowd to arrest at least one guy, maybe 13, if they get all of them. Or I guess minus Judas, so 11 guys total. This is a massive overreaction. Their plan is really simple. Uh, they have a leader, they have a guide. Judas is gonna go, he's gonna show them, this is the guy, they arrest him, the movement is crushed, right? If you don't have a leader, if all your main followers are gone, this Christianity thing then called the way, it's over. But what actually takes place in the story is a little bit more colorful. 
right? They're approaching. And again, if, if you're picturing this as a movie, 200 guys, you're thinking they're going to surround at least 200 guys. They're going to surround the garden and you're going to hear the same scene. <laughs> Open up. But as they're approaching, as they're drawing near, Jesus comes out to them. And Jesus asks them, who are you seeking? And at face value, it seems like such a silly question. Like I, Jesus knew they hated him. Jesus knows all things. So he knew why they were there. But John includes this detail to make it abundantly clear to us that Jesus was firmly in control. If you're just reading the story, you might get the impression that Jesus is a victim here. Look at that crowd of soldiers. Look, his own guy betrayed him. Poor Jesus, a victim of circumstance. But John is trying to make it clear, no, no, no. Jesus is in charge here. Jesus is in control, right? John 10, 18 reminds us that no one takes his life, but he lays it down for his sheep. So Jesus steps out of the garden and greets this group of soldiers, 200 plus, and asks them, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. They fall back. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Right? Verse four, followed up by verse seven. In between though, there's a significant detail. Right? In between those two. It's not just the same exchange. Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. We get a really important narrator's input in verse six. Then John reminds us that when Jesus said, I am he, they fell back. Why does he include this detail? What does it add to the story? At face value, it seems largely insignificant. When you're addressed, you would answer the same way. Where are you? Here I am. I am is just a phrase. That's the way we talk. It's an indefinite pronoun. But at a deeper level, and John is famous for speaking in, in double meanings, in layers of meaning. I am is a quote from one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter three. In Exodus chapter three, we have the story of Moses walking past the burning bush and turning aside because he sees a bush on fire that is not consumed and he meets God, he meets Yahweh. So Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God claims I'm self-existent. I am the God of the universe. And if you're gonna use a shorthand for my name, I am. So when Jesus says, I am, in response to who they're looking for, they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, just a guy. But Jesus responds, no, I, I am. Jesus is claiming something about his identity that these guys are simply missing. They're blind as they seek Jesus. John includes this detail because we cannot be blind in the same way as we look at who Jesus is. Jesus responds, I am. And this is John's way of tying back to something he said in John 17. In John 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for future disciples like us. He has this line in verse five. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, is saying, I have the same glory as you. I have the same attributes as you. Now, I want to go back to Exodus. The glory of God, what reaction does that cause in people? Exodus 40, 
the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If you were gonna shorten those verses into one phrase, you would say Moses fell back. The same reaction of these soldiers. They fell back when Jesus said, I am. They had a peek at the glory of Jesus, but they were blind to who he was. Moses worshiped Yahweh. These men got up off the ground and put handcuffs on him. They did not know who he was. They're horribly ignorant of who Jesus is. It is almost comical to see that reaction. They see Jesus. He claims to be God. They fall back because they're like, something is different about this man. They get up and they put handcuffs on him. Uh, it is almost hilarious how, how dumb they are acting. Uh, it reminded me of a great scene in the movie Monty Python uh, where the Black Knight battles King Arthur, right? Where you have uh, two people fighting. The Black Knight is being a, a turkey, a jerk. And he's like, you shall not pass. So they fight, King Arthur chops off his arm, and he's looking at him, and he's like, it's tis but a scratch. And then they fight again, he chops off his other arm, it's only a flesh wound, right? You have a guy with no hands or no arms, they keep going back and forth, the Black Knight ends up with no arms and no legs, and he's still barking at King Arthur as King Arthur crosses the bridge, calls him a coward because he's running away. And the scene is hilarious because you have a guy with no limbs who's still challenging a king. And in our story, we have men who picked themselves up off the ground to arrest the king. They're even blinder than the Black Knight. This scene is meant to show us the blindness of, these, of this crowd. Judas, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish soldiers, they see the glory of Jesus, the glory he had before creation, the glory he had with the Father, John 17, 5, and they still reject him. They are blind seekers. They're not unique in their blindness. Our world is full of people who do not understand the identity of Jesus. They see him as just a man. You talk to people and they say, oh, Jesus is someone my grandma believes in. Oh yeah, Jesus is something that like, people really care about if they're religious. Uh, Jesus is someone that they make movies and TV shows about. Jesus is someone who there's a book that's, you know, I guess dedicated to him or whatever. People believe in Jesus, but they don't understand his identity. Jesus is God. John 18 is trying to make that abundantly clear to us. There is no other option but to see him as God. C.S. Lewis famously reminded us that when we look at the person of Jesus, you can only choose one of three options. He is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. In Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis draws out this argument where he says, Jesus claimed to be God, as he has done in this passage. I am. He's comparing himself to Exodus 3.14. He's saying, I have the same glory as God who all the Jewish people would worship. And either Jesus is a liar, he is not God, or he's crazy because he's claiming something that he truly believes but is not true. Or option three, he is actually God. John is writing so that we see Jesus is actually God. John tells us, I have written this so that you might believe in the son and have eternal life. 
So tonight, I want to challenge you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand the identity of Jesus. He is God. And turn and cry out for mercy. Do not be a blind seeker. There are blind seekers in our story, but there are also ignorant actors. So John 18, starting in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. There are blind people in the story, blind seekers. But we also have ignorant actors. Peter sees Jesus getting erect, uh, arrested and throws hands. Right? He pulls out his sword and throws a, a slash at someone's head. And maybe Peter had terrible aim because he was a fisherman. He wasn't used to doing that. Uh, maybe he was going for a headshot and the guy kind of dodged him. No matter what, Peter violently tried to prevent the arrest of Jesus. John doesn't give us any other details. If you read Mark's version or Luke's version of this event, you know that Jesus heals the guy and then in thanks, they arrest him anyways. So I mean, it's kind of a, of a bummer story, but they were always there to arrest him. It wouldn't matter what he did. But Peter finds himself on the wrong side of the mission of Jesus. He doesn't understand what Jesus is accomplishing in this moment. Uh, the, the crowd obviously also doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish in this moment, but they were already blind. Peter knew Jesus. Peter had followed Jesus. Peter had heard the teaching of Jesus, but he is still ignorant as to the mission that Jesus is trying to accomplish. He's not understanding the full picture. This reminded me of a video I saw on Instagram, uh, I think a year ago or two years ago. Uh, there was a, a video of a little girl uh, doing a karate match or taking place in a karate match. If you've ever watched little kids try to do high-level sports, uh, it's hilarious because they're not super athletic, but they try really hard. She's got all her little pads on. She can barely move, and the, the ref whistles in, and she throws a terrible leg kick, misses completely. Her opponent, a little boy, throws a leg kick. He barely touches her, but she, like, kind of flinches. And then kind of out of the corner of the screen, you see this little kid, probably like two and a half, three years old, a little boy runs onto the mat and spears the other guy, like just tackles him to the ground. And then you hear the parents like intervening. And he was like, don't touch my sister. And he's swinging at him, which is adorable. I'm like, praise God, godly masculinity, protecting your sister. Uh, but also, dude, relax. It's a karate match. Like she's not in danger. They're wearing so much padding, they can't even move. The little guy didn't know it was a match. He had no idea what was going on. He just saw something he didn't like and tried to intervene. Peter has no idea what is going on. He sees Jesus getting arrested and he thinks, how can this be happening? I can't let it happen. And Jesus is getting arrested, but again, he's not a helpless victim. He came out to them. He stepped out of the garden to them. He told us already, I lay down my life willingly. Peter is ignorant of the plan of redemption and is actively trying to stop it. This isn't the first time Peter has acted a fool. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, after Jesus starts telling them about his future death, 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In Matthew's gospel, he's showing us that Peter did not understand the mission. Our story here is John's version of that. Peter does not understand the mission. He is trying to prevent Jesus from getting arrested because he thinks there is another way. What Peter doesn't know is that there is no other way. There is no other way for salvation to be accomplished. And Jesus gives him a gentle correction in verse 11. We might not see it as gentle correction because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as Peter would have been. He uses a little phrase, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And Peter, a nice Jewish man, would have known that that line goes back to the Old Testament, to the scroll of Isaiah. In Isaiah 51, 21, we read this. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine, thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and, you, and have made you, your back on the ground, and like the street for them, to pass over, they're walking all over you. Isaiah's reflecting on the exile of the people of God as wrath from God, as discipline for their idolatry. And he's saying, there's this moment where God is gonna take back the cup from you and he is gonna give that cup of his wrath to all evildoers, to all the enemies of the people of God, the people who walk on your back as if you're a carpet. The only challenge is that cup of wrath, if it's destined for the wicked, it's destined for all people, right? We are reminded of the brokenness of humankind. Psalm 15, verse one, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who can come before the presence of God? He who walks blameless, who does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart. That standard's too high. If that is the standard, every single one of us is wicked. And every single one of us will drink of this cup. So Peter, in preventing the arrest of Jesus, is preventing Jesus from taking the cup of God's wrath. He's on the wrong side of the, of the fence in regards to the mission of Jesus. Verse 11 is the center of the gospel. Uh, we don't see the cross, so we don't realize that it's the center of the gospel. But what Jesus is talking about is he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to die. And in my death, I will take the cup of God's wrath. In a matter of hours, Jesus barely lasted a few hours on the cross. All of the wrath meant for all of the people of God is poured out on him, is paid for in a single sacrifice. Uh, this is the gospel story, that one man dies so that many can live. This is the language all throughout the scriptures. Romans 5, verse 6, while we were still weak, right? A metaphor for our spiritual brokenness. While we were weak, too weak to save ourselves, at the right time, Jesus took the cup. Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was a willing sacrifice, a willing substitute who died for the ungodly, who died for people that deserve the cup of God's wrath. John 10, 18 again reminds us, Jesus laid down his life willingly. He says this, no one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus is saying, this was always the plan, Peter. I was going to die so that you could live. And once Peter hears that, all opposition is gone. And the scene shifts again. They bind Jesus and they take him away. And then we're given one other detail that is a little bit weird. It's not necessary really for the story, right? We don't need to know that Jesus went to Annas' house. We're reminded what Caiaphas said, which is a helpful understanding of the mission of Jesus, that it is more expedient that one man die than the whole nation. But why is this Annas bit included? Why is it part of the story? Well, I think it's part of the story because whenever you have good news, you share it with the people that you're closest to. Right, so if you get a promotion at work or you get a raise, right, you call your spouse like as quick as possible or you run home and you tell them like, hey, I, you know, I, I, got, I got the raise. We can eat banter every night now, right? Like, or whatever way you wanna splurge your money, right? We, we have more income, so let's celebrate. Uh, if, if you're expecting a child, right, you're, we're having a baby and you call your mom, you call your dad, you call your in-laws, we're having a baby and you FaceTime and everyone's screaming, right? When you have good news to share, you share it with the people that you most care about. Annas was that. The Pharisees had, this is the best day of their life. They're like, we got him. We got the bad guy. We got Jesus. He's done. We got everybody. We found them all in the same place. They're in the same garden. One of their own betrayed him. This is the best day of my life. And they go and they tell Annas. Annas was previously had been the high priest and he was wildly influential in Jewish religious leadership. So they're, share, they're celebrating. That's why they went. They're flexing. We got him. Jesus is going to be gone very soon and we get to keep all our power. They are ignorant in this moment. They think they're winning. Peter is ignorant in this moment. He's trying to stop Jesus from sacrificing himself. We see ignorant actors everywhere in this story. And unfortunately, Christians, well-meaning Christians, sometimes react in ignorance to the gospel message. There are two ways that we misunderstand the work of Christ, the mission of Christ. Uh, Sometimes we downplay the significance of the sacrificial death of Christ. I remember being at CBC and reading a book, Columbia Bible College, that's where I did my undergrad. I was at Bible school and I read a book that wanted to take the focus and put it on Jesus preaching the kingdom. If you read through the gospels, you see that phrase everywhere. Repent and follow me. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. You have this language of kingdom. Jesus came to make a better world. And the guy who wrote the book was saying, let's focus our attention on this recreation. Let's focus our attention on justice. Let's focus our attention on creation care. All of these are wonderful things, but my question is, is that what the center of the gospel is? 
all of these things. Because when I read verse 11 of John 18, I'm reminded that the center of the gospel is the sacrificial death of Christ. If he does not drink that cup, then I have to. He had to die so that I could live. Everything good in the Christian faith flows from the sacrificial death of Christ for sinners. Jesus dies so that you can live. If there is no sacrificial death, there is no resurrection and eternal life. If there is no sacrificial death, there is no ascension after the resurrection and no arrival of the Holy Spirit, right? All of those things took place after the sacrificial death of Christ. It is well and truly the center of the gospel. My favorite comic makes this clear. I'm gonna show it to you. This is a little comic called BC. I hate the term Good Friday. Why? Uh, My Lord was hanged on a tree that day. If you were going to be hanged on that day and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? Good. Have a nice day. If a comic writer understands that this is the center of the gospel, that I should be on that tree, that I should have the cup of God's wrath, and Jesus took my place, why don't we? It is increasingly common that Christians want to focus on all manner of things. It is good that we talk and live good Christian lives. But we always need to remember the center of the gospel is the sacrificial death of Christ for sinners. So Christians sometimes downplay that as a misunderstanding of his mission. The second misunderstanding of his mission is that Christians often fail to respond with thankful hearts. I spend all of my time around Christians. I work in a massive church and I serve amongst young adults and I play on sports teams that have lots of Christians on them. And Christian people are not really known for their smiles. Not because we don't have them, right? We all have braces and pretty teeth that we can smile like this. But Christian people aren't super known for their like happiness or thankfulness, or at least not in any way that is a significant uh, more or significantly more prevalent than the rest of society. And I have to wonder, is, is that the status quo? Is that the way it should be? Because when we compare it to what the early church was like, they seem to walk around with grins tattooed to their face. Listen to this, Acts chapter two. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Apparently, every Christian in the early church just walked around happy to be around other people and say, he is risen, can't wait to celebrate. We're coming to your house, we're gonna break bread. You know, Jesus saves, amen. They just happen to be the happiest people. And I mean, if you understood that you deserve the cup of wrath and someone else took it for you, and that someone who took it for you then resurrected to give you eternal life and fills you with the spirit and gave you a church around you so that you would not be alone, I think that would put a smile on your face. Uh, We see that in little people. Uh, In the previous service, there was a bunch of little kids up front dancing along to some of the songs. And I can't help but think that sometimes kids are better models of Christian joy than grownups. They might not even fully understand the gospel, but they're just happy to sing the songs and celebrate the story of Jesus. If you have understood the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, I think you could probably be a happy person too. 
I think thankfulness is an appropriate response to understanding the mission of Jesus. When we pray, when we sing, when we talk, Christians should have thankful hearts. Our story shows us ignorant actors and blind seekers, people who did not understand the identity of Jesus or the mission of Jesus. And we see this everywhere in the world. When I was on the mission trip in Salt Lake City amongst LDS people, they did not understand who Jesus was or what his mission was, what he had accomplished. C.S. Lewis reminds us, Jesus is liar, lunatic, or Lord, if John was gonna answer that question by C.S. Lewis, based on John 18, one to 14, what would he answer? Obviously, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Too often, people are blind seekers or ignorant actors. My hope is that you do not leave here tonight not knowing who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for this scripture uh, that reminds us who Jesus is. Lord, we can miss it sometimes. Even if we've been in the church our whole lives, even if we've studied the scriptures, uh, we can be distracted, we can forget, we can lose our joy. So Father, I pray that tonight and the rest of this week, that our people would be thankful, joyful, happy Christians not because circumstances are perfect in their life, but because they know who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Jesus took the cup that was meant for us and gave us life. So Father, help us celebrate, help us rejoice as we sing a few songs and as we leave this place. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.